Welcome. My name is Jed Dorsheimer, and I will be your host of the Plugged In Podcast, brought to you by William Blair. Energy is everything. I would argue that, really, if we are like fish, then energy is like the water. And you can't get capital formation, at least in the real economy, without a surplus of energy, which is why the Industrial Revolution was so profound. But putting these pieces together is often, you know, difficult and sometimes can seem esoteric. And so we've had some great guests on. I have a lineup of many more great guests. And one of the things that I thought would be useful to you, our listeners, is every third podcast to try and get somebody from industry, in this case, from the financial industry. So we will try and apply the science that you tend to hear from the Dave Murphys or Nate Hagens in the previous podcast. And we can then take that and today with Patrick Kent, apply that in terms of how do we think about that in our daily business? How does that put food on the table, so to speak? So I'm pleased to have with me today, Patrick Kent. Patrick and I are good friends. We co-founded the Biophysical Economics Institute uh, with some others together. And with that, I'll turn it to Patrick to um, maybe tell us uh, a little bit more. So thanks. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this being a regular event, particularly walking you around and showing you the different stuff we're doing here on the uh, on the farm. I guess first thing, and I kind of came up with my journey to biophysical economics actually by begrudgingly buying this farm and kind of <laughs> thinking about some of these things and having horses and thinking about the role of energy and, and how that flows to the economy. And, uh, and we ended up co-founding an institute together around some of these topics. And, and I thought it'd be a good place to start just to, you know, we had Nate Hagens talk about energy blindness, Dave Murphy talk about some of these concepts that we've been working on together. I thought it'd be great to have you maybe start talking about your journey to biophysical economics yeah. and then and then what that actually means. I'd like to really spend most of the time getting into what that actually means and how yeah. to apply that. And how we think about jobs. applying yeah. some of that. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I go back, it starts sort of back when I was studying for the CFA. I mean, I was kind of teaching myself a lot of sort of economics and or reteaching it because I took an appalling lack of that kind of stuff in my undergrad. And so when I began reading through a lot of economics textbooks, certainly in kind of the neoclassical economics as it's presented to most, you know, finance people, it just seemed to like an appalling lack of, of sort of thinking around, I'd call it sustainability, but just some of the sort of the key foundational things that we accept as true in economics. And yet, that sort of flies in the face of like how the natural world really functions, right? You know, I think conceptually we think of the economy as this kind of perpetual motion machine of, of consumers and producers and exchanging income through these markets. And it's all a very like nice, efficient mathematical model. 
But the reality is the world's a lot more messy than that. And so if we think about how does that system, you know, our economic system has grown relative to the size of the natural world. Not surprisingly, we're seeing impacts, right? We're seeing what we call externalities that are impacting that. And so where my kind of journey to biophysical economics really started was more just thinking about like, why are these distortions, like these things that we're focused on that are like these problems that we were highlighting, whether it's environmental degradation or it's income inequality or these other things like, you know, these are, why are these happening? Right. And sort of understanding some first principles and, you know, there, I'm sure there's probably many, many ways to sort of to look at that. And there's a lot of different answers that might be given, but certainly one of the things that I, I realized is I just think it's a fact that economics generally, as we learn, it just hasn't properly accounted for some certain things. And so our model, the way we think about how wealth is created is not an accurate one, for example, right? And this is sort of what Nate Higgins was probably getting at and Dave Murphy probably brought up as well. Just the fact that energy is not an, really an explicit term in the production function, right? We just think of capital and labor. And, you know, as, as you know, because you know, Steve Keen, the economist, you know, had said, right, like that capital without energy is a sculpture and labor without energy is a corpse. And that is a reality, right? It's the flow system that makes it all work and the system sort of adjusts size to that. And I think understanding more explicitly how that both like systems thinking, natural sciences, most importantly, energy and thermodynamics play into uh, the economic models where biophysical economics, I think, has the potential to be uh, a powerful tool, certainly as we're developing it, if the Institute's successful. <laughs> yeah. I like how you describe that. For me, I think one of the problems that I observed is that there's just a basic fundamental misunderstanding of basic nomenclature in terms. The buzzword I've spent 20 years in and out of something that's considered sustainability. Very few people, like what I like to blow their minds is go to a sustainability conference and ask somebody to define what sustainability means. And they'll be like, well, yeah, I feel like I'm in, you know, the, coming up with six minute abs and something about Mary. And so if you kind of look at the Latin root of the word, it actually means to cradle or hold. And if you add in life as a self uh, replicating organism, that can experience consciousness, then all of a sudden that starts to take, take hold or form. Yeah. And we get familiar, certainly in finance, we tend to get familiar with a lot of buzzwords. And I love asking like, well, okay, what does that mean? What yeah. does it mean to you? Yeah. Oftentimes it's, it's like there's lacking of a first principles understanding of why that term is even being used or how that term is defined. Exactly. And, and I've, as we, you know, I think we've probably talked about before, I find, you know, there is a sustainability in investments and finance can oftentimes, sometimes, I think, suffer from a, a tautological problem of just being like sustainable finance is financing sustainably, right? It's just this like circular, well, yes, but what are we trying to accomplish and what's the actual like really first principles reason why we're here, which is kind of my point about externalities and well, the, even, sort of even the friction circular. between the models, right? Like I, that's, yeah. I mean, that's now celebrated is a circular economy. Yeah. Which is the very definition of a perpetual motion right. machine. And I've always sort of like, yeah, I've always been sort of, I think my skin crawls a little bit when I hear that because I understand the essence of it. Like the, yes, it is meant to, what it's meant to mean, but I think we want specificity in our terms here. And a circular economy is not something that is really achievable. Right? Yeah. And I shouldn't um, throw. But what we could, you know, what is achievable, maybe like a hyper efficient economy might be one that we can mm -hmm. talk about being a possibility, but that's not circular. It's just sort of minimizing waste heat or resource waste. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I actually find that we have more in common with classical economic theory is a student of history. If you go back and you actually look at the classics and even going back to the French physiocrats, right. biophysical economics was what was in practice because we had a simple economy. And just for our audience, if I like to describe, if you go on a trip to Bali and you kind of get one of those little huts over the, over the water and you decide you're going to carve your own boat and catch the fish, then you can, you can live off of something that, that is just above your sustenance. The problem we have today is we have this, as complexity has arisen, to have fire and police and paved roads and lights that can come on at any time, it requires a level of inefficiency or redundancy that leads to something that's not super sustainable. It's an incredibly complex system we have, right? That's a, is a function of largely of how much energy we have to flow through the system, right? Mm-hmm. And we've had an enormous surplus of energy that's been available uh, flowing through the system for well over a century and has allowed us to reach this level of complexity. That is really, I think, the key to, to understanding biophysical economics. What is it? Why is it maybe useful? It's really just, I think of it as just framework, changing the framework through which we're evaluating the economy, society, but obviously when it comes down to it, if we bring it all the way down to to the earth here, to portfolios and investments, right? How are we going to think about using this as to enhance the framework for for looking? I mean, when I think of in finance and certainly in investment management, right, there's always this kind of desire to learn, you know, as much as possible about the state of the world right now, slightly faster than someone else, right? Mm -hmm. You might call that having an edge on an investment, right? That you have like this idea of like, oh, I've, I've figured out what's going on and, and arbitraging something. But I think there's a, a huge amount of misunderstandings and distortions that are actually happening in the market, which creates enormous opportunity if you just shift the lens through which you're looking at it all, right? So like applying kind of biophysical economics, it starts to be, I think, a way of, of thinking about that. So what does that even mean? Let's like bring it again down to like some practical ways you might bring this framework into investment analysis. I think of three sort of at least three immediate ways that you could do that. One is at the macro level. We've talked about this, like thinking in terms of the cost of energy. And you've talked about this, I think, in some of your printed material as well. The amount of work in a barrel of oil, an MCF of gas, a, a kilowatt hour like of electricity, like that doesn't change, right? That is what it is. And then through whatever conversion efficiency, you get a certain amount of work. So the real economy, like, right? is a function really of just how much available energy there is. Then there's the, the monetized economy, which is GDP, which is sort of like you stretch that blanket over the bed and almost get most of it, but that's what the real economy. And that's ultimately a cash flow metric. So what we really care about is like, what are these activities monetizing, are being monetized? And in that sense, we care about money supply. We care about credit creation. We care about Federal Reserve policy. We care about whether liquidity is increasing or decreasing. But what's interesting is one of the places I think about is just including energy in that term entirely. If like just thinking about it as as energy prices rise, I mean, just today we were just talking about the fact that Brent's back here at $87, $88 a barrel. That's kind of climbing. I look at that and it's like, that's tightening liquidity because now a, to buy a barrel of oil is going to now cost more than it did which means to get that same amount of work that you were getting from that barrel now costs more. So the real economy has has cost more cash flow to that primary source of work 
in the real economy. So that's one place. Like, so to keep that in terms, like keeping in mind as we think about tightening and loosening policy, that we're also thinking about what's happening with energy prices at the margin, because those are now also acting that, that way. So let's pause there for one second. Yeah. Let me just try this on. So what I heard from you is in the macro, the real economy is a function of energy production. Right. And that- Or available energy. Available energy. Say, yeah. And the total amount is always going to be one, but the usable amount is going to differ based on the entropy, the waste heat that can't be recovered, right? right? That creates our real economy. Now, we fractionalize that in the form of a nominal economy, I think is the bedspread that you're trying to fit over as much as you you can. The role of a central bank should be to adjust the productivity of what that fractionalization of the real economy. So I totally agree with how you're looking at that I think where some people have gotten lost is we've forgotten about real mm. and we focus all of it on nominal, right. assuming that the central banks are God in terms of being able to, but not realizing that their role is the intermediary. And if you don't actually have the energy production or where that, that energy policy, how that's being developed, right. then the whole thing starts to unravel or fall apart. Yeah. And so, no, so coming back to, so I, that's one, one way in which I think about it is that you want to apply this to macro, right? That that's at least one place where you can begin to, to think about it. I think an ancillary, another way in which this can be utilized is sort of thinking around theme development or how, how that nominal GDP is going to shift between activities, right? So as energy prices climb, then the consumer has less to spend on something else, right? If Mm -hmm. gasoline prices are up, then you need to drive your car less or you buy less of something else, right? And so we can see that at a at a secular, like sort of macro level, we can see themes then develop, right? If we're like, and, and as we were talking about before the podcast, if I think of, you know, I look at a theme that's developing in the market as like the energy transition, climate adaptation, reshoring, mm-hmm. all these things that we want to do. Well, that's an enormous amount of just matter acceleration. Like we're going to do a lot of digging, a lot of building, a lot of like moving things around. One, that's very energy intensive. Two, it's an enormous amount of just engineering and construction work. The sheer amount of infrastructure we're talking about is just like the golden age then of engineering and construction, right? I mean, <laughs> just mm-hmm. supply demand of, engi- of people who know how to build that kind of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's that's sort of an emergent area. It's just, again, applying the framework to look at events to sort of see the unintended consequences coming and some which create investment cases potentially, right? Last one, and I think, you know, you, you've probably done even more here than, than I have, is sort of applying some of these principles for technology evaluation. So when we have something presented to you as the next best thing to slice bread that's going to solve XYZ around sustainability or the economy, like having a real enough knowledge to ask the right questions around energy intensity, right? The dead horse I beat a lot is like the idea of direct air carbon capture, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that's gotten a lot in press lately. Yeah. But I mean, stop and think about, I mean, just again, like just stop and think about what that is, right? We've taken energy that was trapped in molecules compressed under thousands, millions of years of pressure, dug it out of the ground, released the energy and put a ton of leftover material into the air. And now somehow you're going to capture that and pull it back down and force it underground or force it into something else with less energy than you got out of it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like, 
that doesn't really seem to pass basic thermodynamics questions right from the start. It's sort of like a lot of these solutions, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. They start to, it effectively depends on having an incredibly cheap source of energy. I'm like, well, yes, if we have an incredibly cheap source of energy that's carbon free, we could do anything. I mean, like, of course, sure. I mean, like, then that doesn't matter. If that's not your limit, that's not your budget, then sure, you could try almost anything. But as soon as you start thinking about it, it's like, well, we have an energy budget. There's only so much you can do. Is that the best use of the energy or is there some other, other thing you might want to use it for? Oh, where to go here? I think part of this comes back to the fallacy of infinite substitutability, which yeah. is where we led to which I think has done more damage than anything else, this basic concept that we're somehow decoupled from the system. And when I mean the system, the biosphere, the economy, that we're somehow above or separate from instead of part of, which yeah. I kind of come back to the basic butterfly effect principle. And the problem with the butterfly effect, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that if a butterfly flaps its wings, it has an impact, even as minute as they can't be measured, there is some impact or goes to the Copenhagen double slit experiment, for yeah, example, right. without getting into quantum mechanics. And, and so the idea then is, is we're part of this system and as part of this system, we, for most of the industrial revolution, were fish without questioning the water around us, which is energy. And now, as things become tighter, it's almost forced into the frontal lobe to kind of contemplate over how does this change the other... The yeah, other I think that's a good... Because we're starting to reconcile that, right? So another theme, I talked about engineering and construction, but another theme that sort of developed, and I wrote this about three years ago, we did a piece on frontier themes. And about three years ago, I wrote this thing on the, on the coming sort of renaissance in nuclear technology. And what led me there was sort of thinking about this, right? That now everyone's kind of probably familiar with the fact that like we've kind of changed our tune a bit on nuclear right but even just three years ago that i, I was when i threw this out there as a frontier theme people looked at me a little like really i was like well there's just no i was like there's no way to get to like a, a carbon free energy grid in any like conceivable time time frame if you're going to shut down all your nuclear like that's like it doesn't make any sense. Not only should we not be shutting it down, we should probably be reinvesting in it and we should be maybe even considering building more of it. That was not the tune three, four years ago. And oh boy, that's changed a ton since mm. then. We've seen Japan reverse course on it. France is now talking about reinvesting in their fleet, which is well over 30 years old, produces 70% of their, of their uh, electricity or more. They were originally talking about whether they were going to sunset that. Now they've gone completely around. They now want to reinvest in it and maybe even build more. Germany's starting to come around on it. Sweden came around on it just a couple of weeks ago. Like, I mean, we've had in the IRA, there were additional subsidies mm -hmm. right, but to, to our existing nuclear fleet. So that's completely switched gears right yeah. and like but that was something i mean i was highlighting which was, is a good yeah. thing no but, but so we talk about concrete examples of this this yeah. thinking like that was pretty it was kind of a contrarian view three years mm -hmm, ago mm -hmm. like when i was saying when i said that out loud you're we like wow that's not gonna happen but like here we are because the physical re like the biophysical reality like the thermodynamics of this just were like there's we're undeniable like yeah, there's yeah. just no way to get where we want to go if we're not going to sort of take the least bad option which is to sort of continue looking at fission and and as you pointed out before we started the recording that's on old tech we're even evaluating this on tech that's you know goes back to the 60s and 70s really like we haven't really spent the time and money to look at 
newer technologies. We've been underinvested in this technology for decades. So who knows where we could be with that, right? We should be really looking more carefully at it. Yeah, I agree. So we just had a, a guest come in, one of my uh, one of my dogs. Just uh, heard us talking about <laughs> nuclear and had to get involved. Yeah. Had to come in and be involved in the conversation, I know. I think this is a, a classic example of where, you know, using and applying what's largely lived and been kept in an academic vault could be commercialized in a way that if we don't have a solid ener- energy understanding, well, then you are literally building skyscrapers on quicksand. You, yeah. you don't, you don't have a bedrock to kind of build off of. Yeah. If you don't like, if you're, if you're sort of in denial about how this system really truly functions, like, I mean, I just don't, I don't know how, where, where to go with it. Right. <laughs> like if we really think, Money makes the world go round, but we can just print more of it. Like, I mean, this is kind of the modern monetary theory sort of right debunking, which is sort of like, how does that possibly work, right? If you just create more claims on the existing resources, that doesn't necessarily create more resources. Like, I think that's pretty. I should try that with my bank, <laughs> you know, with my mortgage, you know, <laughs> just say, hey, listen, but. I think yeah. I brought this up on, I mean, I probably brought this up on a previous podcast, right? That like, it just comes down to, you know, and this is a good example of where like the traditional thinking of like traditional economics brought to business school finance students who then kind of go on to sort of think this way, fascinating anthropology of what is money? And we come back and we just say, oh, well, it's a store of value. It's a relative measure. It's like, we already have this like, and yet it's like a medium of exchange. We have the rote answer ready. And yet to us who like, who look at this like biophysical economic framework, five to like, 11 megajoules. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's well, what it really is, is a call on, it's a call. I can hand over this paper and go or, or wire it to you. Even that's like an outdated phrase now, wiring money. But it's really kind of like my expectation is I get something in return. If I get something in return, I have work the sun, then it took energy to accomplish that. Like, uh-huh. so embedded in every single dollar is exactly what you're saying. There's like an embedded amount of energy in every single dollar. If you just print more, you now have less energy in uh-huh. that dollar. So what do you, I mean, you're going to inflate prices, right? If that happens. And debt is just a future call on, on energy with a added embodiment to the interest. Right. And so the idea that you can, you know, again, it comes back, we're saying the same thing. You can't print your way out of a, a box. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everybody kind of knows, right? You either, you either pay it off in the future, like in real terms, or you default on it. You know, implicitly or explicitly, right? That's but it. if we did find, say, a highly concentrated source of energy, that is a way and the system, that, grows, and the system right. works. That's so right. if system you're in grows. surplus, yeah. then you can not only deal with your debts that have been incurred, but you can also get real growth, which is exactly what we saw in the 1800s with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, where we That's changed right. the productive function with mechanization and found in new energy sources that were highly concentrated. Yeah, I think that's where you and I like part ways with some of the the kind of degrowth group, right? There's yeah, a lot I'm of people. Clear. I'm not in the There's a lot of people, yeah, but there's a lot of people around. I mean, at the fringes around sustainability, certainly at some of the people around things like biophysical economics, like that there's this kind of like, oh, well, we just, the system has to be to shrink. It has to be smaller. It has to be, we have to degrow. Like we have to think in terms of not growing. And I'm like, that's just not, I think that's, that's really not the point. The point is not to sort of extrapolate to that. The point is to better understand how this system functions so we can actually make it function better, maybe function bigger. Like 
we don't have to necessarily say that the only thing to do is is to to shrink it. It's just to identify the the core underlying problem and treat that problem, which is like we need high dense sources of energy that don't necessarily add carbon to the atmosphere. Like, great, we can look at as we said, fission is a good example. We know of at least several handful of companies that are working on fusion. I don't know if any of them will work, but maybe one of them will, or maybe some of them will, or maybe one that hasn't even started yet will, right? There's, there's ways that we might end up seeing like eventually higher energy density, all of these things, but we have to stick it out of this place of necessarily demonizing things and just think more in terms of technological evaluation. Does this net improve our conversion efficiency? Does it net add more available energy to the system? Well, and I think to be clear, degrowth can work. It is a solution. The problem is you have to look at the consequences of that solution. And this is where I think Adrian Bejan's work is, is just brilliant down at Duke. When he talks about freedom and evolution are a function of a movement of energy, movement yeah. of ideas, movement of people. And so therefore to degrowth actually goes against natural order in terms of the thought process, because nobody will choose poverty over wealth, for example. Yeah. And so you're asking for something that on paper you can, you can, you know, either change the numerator or the denominator. But when you look at what's actually embedded in that, it's never worked before, like literally never worked in human history where you've seen an example of that, that I can think of. And in most cases where it was tried, the, consequences are absolutely horrific. He's a fascinating guy to talk to. And some of the stuff he points out, I think is, it's like, so, like a lot of brilliant people. It's like, it's almost obvious once he shows it to you and then you're like, well, that doesn't seem that complicated. It's like, yeah, but you didn't think of it. <laughs> you know? um, when he puts sort of the, like, you know, he has charts. I know he's shown of like, you know, uh, freedom versus energy use, mm -hmm. energy use versus GDP, freedom versus GDP. It's like, yes, these things are all connected yeah. and that the freedom of the system allows more energy use and allows like, and therefore it allows the system to get bigger and allows for a higher quality of life. Yeah. Jevon's paradox where, you know, I think most use that as an argument or a stalking horse of why energy efficiency can't work. But what they miss is the social utility is actually increased as a function of the increase of efficiency. If our miles per gallon, I know that's an old terminology, but if we look at miles per gallon going from five miles per gallon to 50 miles per gallon, my driving usage will change where I will use the vehicle more and get bring arguably more utility into my life by having that mobility. This, this is what I actually think is fascinating. Like in this again, like biophysical economics allows us to actually give real scientific, like thermodynamic reasons for many observations that exist in, in, in traditional economics. Jevons paradox is the reason why there's like a supply demand curve, right? Mm -hmm. Like supply demand curves are like taught like it's a law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this happens, it's like this, but why? <laughs> like, and you're kind of pointing it out, like because when you suddenly improve the conversion efficiency of your vehicle such that your miles per gallon went from five to 50, you reduce the cost of moving a mile with that thing by an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can do a lot more with it, right? So you do, right? yeah. um, because that's like, so all of a sudden that's a reason why, like when the supply curve moves up, the price goes down, like, and therefore the demand curve moves up, like, then that's why these things sort of happen. And there's actual like physical, biophysical reasons why this is the case. 
we should probably give a plug to the Institute where people could go and learn more about this. And, you know, is there, you know, I think we touched on a lot of super powerful concepts that, uh, you know, I'd like to have you back and discuss more, but I'll leave it to you. Do you want to give a plug to the Institute and where people can find uh, more information around these? Yeah, so certainly you can check out the Institute's website, bpinstitute.org. Feel free to to donate if you like. If you like what you're uh, reading and you want to hear more of it and you want to help fund some more research in the area. In addition, we've also been running webcasts on there. So you can feel free to sign up for those and be around. You can hear fascinating discussions like Adrian or uh, Nate Hagen's there as well. And the uh, Institute is now funding this work on its own. So yeah. I mean, that's really the goal, right? Is that ultimately we'll just be able to put grants out in the field for, for more academic work in this area. So, And for those who want to learn more about this and applying it to financial analysis, you know, reach out to your sales uh, person or me directly at William Blair and be happy to uh, share a lot of the work that we've written on these uh, key concepts and, and topics. So, Patrick, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always love having a chat with you. For more, head to williamblair.com slash thinking, uh, where you can browse our library of white papers, market updates, webinars, and all these other resources designed to provide actionable intelligence for emerging opportunities. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair and Company, LLC, William Blair Investment Management, LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.